Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for June 13th, 2018. On today's episode, we'll catch up with Slash Film senior writer Ben Pearson at the Water Cooler and talk about today's film and TV news. This is Slash Film editor-in-chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast are Slash Film weekend editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's up? And writer Y Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. Okay, it's been a couple weeks since Ben has uh, been on the water cooler. He's been away on vacation, so I thought uh, since he wasn't able to join us on Monday that we'd catch up with him and find out what he's been up to. So, Ben, what have you been up to? Yeah, I was visiting uh, some family in Florida. My parents moved into a new house, so that was always, uh, you know, that's an exciting thing to go in. And it's weird because they moved out of the house that I grew up in, essentially. I I moved when I was about uh, 14 or 15, and my parents had been in that house for the past, I think it was like 17 or 18 years or something like that. So it's been uh, a weird experience to go back to Florida and see a house that I'm not familiar with. Um, that, so that's the first time that's happened to me uh, since I moved to L.A. in 2009. Um, but anyway, I, I also wait, got wait. To... So w- were you returning home to the the house you had grown up? In no, for... no. They they just moved into a new house about a week before. No, I mean uh, like my pre- wife. previously. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Every time I flew back to, you know, come back for holidays or visits or anything like that, it was always going back to the house that I grew up in. So um, there was a sense that I was, you know, going home, basically. But that uh, has sort of been removed a little bit. Uh, But, you know, it's exciting times for them moving into a new place. And I'm excited to uh, to see it when it's all decorated and all that stuff, because basically it's just like a shell of a (laughs) a house right now. They really like literally just moved in a few days before uh, I got there. So. Um, it was cool to sort of be there with them and, and uh, you know, in this moment of transition. But uh, I also got to hang out with my baby niece, who is my wife's sister. I just had a kid, uh, I guess it was about six months ago. Um, so she's very, uh, <laughs> she's a handful, but she's a lot of fun. So it was, it's cool to, you know, just spend some time with family back there and um, and be there during these, yeah, like important times in, in various people's lives. Uh, my side of the family, we also 
traveled to Key West for the first time. I grew up in Florida, but I'd never been to Key West before. And a lot of my family hadn't actually. So we uh, jumped on a plane, traveled down there and just did the whole tourist thing, really. Like we rode jet skis, which was really awesome. That was the first time I'd done that on the open ocean. Uh, we were going like 44 miles an hour, I think is what we topped out at. So that was, just, <laughs> it was pretty choppy at certain points, but a lot of fun. If anybody's ever been on a jet ski, I don't have to tell you how much fun it is. Um, we did uh, like kayaking out through these like mangrove trees and stuff. It was a lot of fun too. Uh, we visited the house of Ernest Hemingway, famous writer. Um, I have yet to read any of Hemingway's novels. I was never assigned any of those books in school or anything like that, but I have a few now and uh, I'm looking forward to diving in and, and checking that stuff out, especially after seeing his house. And man, the house is so gorgeous. If you guys haven't ever seen it before, I would just recommend doing like a Google image search because it's a, a gorgeous old place. Um, I think he was living there in like the 1930s and he wrote like 70 percent of his uh, of his entire body of work there. Uh, and then I also visited uh, a saloon called Captain Tony's, which if anybody's a Jimmy Buffett fan, I don't know if we have any Jimmy Buffett fans <laughs> listening to the podcast, but like I said, I grew up in Florida. So I think that sort of comes with the territory. I was a Jimmy Buffett fan. My dad was a huge fan and still is. And uh, so I grew up listening to that music. And uh, Captain Tony, it was uh, his name was Tony Terracino, and he was the uh, a bartender at this place. And I guess the local people of Key West got so fed up with the politics that they eventually uh, elected their favorite bartender, the mayor of the city. Um, so yeah, that was kind of a cool thing. Uh, and we got to go to his bar and it's featured in one or two Jimmy Buffett songs. So that was like a cool, um, you know, hallowed ground kind of experience for my dad. And, and, uh, it was, it was fun being there with him and, and checking out the, all the photos on the wall of Jimmy Buffett and all that kind of stuff. Um, in did, terms did, of like, did, Oh, go ahead. Did you eat any, uh, key lime pie while you were in Key West? <laughs> I know I'm people are going to like scream at me. I'm not a fan of key lime pie, so I feel like it was all wasted on me. But every other member of my family, yes, definitely <laughs> jumped in and, and took advantage of that. They actually had some that was like uh, I think it was like frozen key lime pie that was dipped in chocolate. It was like on a stick almost. And they said that that was the best kind that they had there. You would think that it would be like just a classic traditional kind of dish would be the best one. But I guess they found this chocolate dipped version that was pretty amazing. So if you're there, <laughs> check that out if you get a chance uh, on the plane. I watched Game Night and The Death of Stalin. I think we've talked about both of those pretty recently on the podcast before, so I don't really need to go into that, but I uh, liked both of them. I thought Game Night was really fantastic, especially considering how terrible the trailers made it look. Um, and Jesse Plemons, man, he's like definitely the MVP of that movie. Uh, and then I caught up with Westworld, the most recent episode, and I think you guys just talked about that maybe on yesterday's episode, so I don't need to go into that uh, too much more anyway, but it, that was... The is it your feeling that this is the best episode of the se series or season? Yes. Yeah, both. Um, and it's, it's one of those things where like, uh, it makes you recontextualize some of the things that you've seen before. And I wish that the entire show would uh, use that to the techniques that appeared in the most recent episode. I'm trying to be spoiler free here for people who haven't caught up yet, but I wish the entire show would use those techniques to make you look back and think di differently about things that you've seen before instead of what they did in the first season, which is like purposely mislead you and sort of try to pull the rug out from under you because this uh, most recent episode was just 
it worked so much better for me on an emotional level, on a creative level, on every level of execution than anything that we've seen before in the show. So I, I really, um, I think it was worth sticking with it just to see that episode. But yes, I'm, I share both of your concerns, you and Chris, I think, Peter, who were talking about this, that uh, next week is just going to be back to its normal nonsense. But uh, anyway, it was a great episode. And then I also finally, really quickly, just to wrap this up, read Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes. That was my first Ray Bradbury novel that I've ever checked out. And uh, I enjoyed it. It's very, like, his writing style sort of took me by surprise. There's a lot of um, description, like, like flourishes, I guess is how you would say it. It's not, like, overly descriptive like a George R. R. Martin novel, but there are a lot of, like, stylistic flourishes in the way that he describes things. Uh, I wish I had the book right in front of me so I could read you guys an example. But if maybe I'm... Like I said, that was the first Bradbury novel that I read, so maybe this is like a regular thing for his writing, but I have a couple other books of his that I'm, again, looking forward to checking out as soon as I get a chance. So yeah, sorry for the whirlwind uh, <laughs> uh, tour of what I've been doing for the past couple of weeks, but I just wanted to take you through some highlights. Well, it sounds like you've been having a lot of fun and uh, consuming a lot of great film and TV because it doesn't seem like you, you have anything bad to say on your list here, so that that's always good. Yeah. Um, but let's, uh, let's move on to film news. First up is news of a podcast turning into a big screen movie in that it comes in the form of S-Town. Brad, you wrote this up for the site. What do we know? Indeed. Uh, for those who didn't hear about this podcast last spring, it became quite the hit um, along the same lines of the way Serial went viral. Uh, this is a podcast from the folks behind This American Life. And... Uh, it had an interesting mystery at the center of it, but not the same kind of mystery that was at the center of Serial. Um, it's it's a little bit hard to get into what the real story of the podcast is without spoiling some interesting twists and turns that happen pretty early on in the in the podcast series. So uh, just I'll just say that the, basically it follows a reporter named Brian Reed who is asked to investigate uh, the son of a wealthy family that's allegedly been bragging that he got away with murder in this small town called Woodstock, Alabama. And it's commonly referred to as S-Town, or uh, more commonly, even more commonly than that, Shit-Town, because it is this one of these southern hellscape towns where everything is run down and just full of some of the, the strangest people. And it's, it's one of those towns that really just got, you know, it, it hit hard by some kind of depression or maybe never, like, rose up to be this, you know, sort of great place for, for people to live or anything like that. And as this reporter does in this investigation, he starts finding out uh, strange things about the town and these uh, kind of family conflicts and disputes over money and uh, strange amounts of danger, danger and intrigue. And it's all centered around this uh, man. Um, sorry, excuse me. Uh, this this man named jo uh, John B. Mecklemore, who is one of the most fascinating characters, um, who is a real person that that you've ever heard talk on a podcast there are extensive interviews with this guy and it's it really is just this very fascinating podcast and the way the story unfolds it goes places that you don't expect um and so tom mccarthy uh the director of spotlight is going to turn it into a movie that will be scripted by playwright samuel d hunter now th this is kind of strange because i feel like this podcast and i have listened to it is so much about kind of this place in these kind of wacky characters and i feel like it would be so easy to turn them into kind of caricatures and make fun of them and uh i mean obviously uh tom mccarthy 
is a, a good director and would not do that. But I, I could see picturing this movie in my mind. I just picture, you know, I can't picture the good version of it. Yeah, I, I'm not really sure. This doesn't seem like an easy story to adapt into a movie. Um, it's It has a lot of moving pieces, and it's I, it feels like a story that is more fascinating in podcast form because of how things are uncovered and how they came to be. And I just don't know how this uh, pans out as you know a typical sort of uh, three-arc movie, but I feel like if anybody can do it, it's Tom McCarthy because he did such a great job with Spotlight by letting the story at the center of that movie do the heavy lifting, almost like, you know, a, a journalist lets the story, you know, act on its own and doesn't really do anything to make it flashy or anything like that. He just lets it speak for itself. So uh, hopefully he can do that here with this uh, subject matter. And uh, McCarthy has also directed The Station Agent, which is another movie about, like, characters in this rural town. And yeah. S-Town is nothing if not about its characters. So I, th I feel like, yeah, like you're saying, Brad, he has that ability to sort of sit back and not put too much... Uh, extra on it and just like let the story tell itself almost like I feel like you know this could be like a Fargo but I'm just picturing everything of like what Fargo could have how bad Fargo could have been if the Coen brothers didn't do it do you know what I mean mm. um, I actually feel like S-Town fits more in line with something like the Florida Project because to me listening to that podcast was more like a mood and a feeling oh, about sure. this time and place rather than like any plot or story or care although the characters too are really strong but I don't think it would be a very plot driven story uh movie if uh McCarthy were to adapt it as the podcast I guess uh is along the lines of for sure um, okay, let's move on to Warner Brothers. The other day we talked about Jim Lee replacing Jeff Johns uh, in the high-up creative role in DC's uh, movie division, DC Entertainment. And now we have learned that there is a, a slate of of shifting going on with the DC movies. HT, you wrote up an uh, article on the site detailing all the stuff, all the changes that are going on. What do we know right now? Yeah, so a new Hollywood Reporter uh, report um, gave insight into what's going on with Warner Brothers now because of all of the executive uh, shakeups going on. And uh, DC Entertainment Film Production President Walter Hamada, who uh, recently, who came on, I think, in like December 2017, has been sort of quietly trying to reorganize the chaotic slate uh, and um, – He's kind of the reason that we don't have anything past Aquaman and Shazam uh, in the future slate as of now because he's just trying to just uh, organize a, a slate that is in disarray. So Warner Brothers right now is in a state of transition. Uh, they are considering launching a new label uh, in within their DC Entertainment division that will encompass the sort of standalone films uh, that has to do with the Joker uh, origin movie starring Joaquin Phoenix, for example. And that label would be called either DC Dark or DC Black. And uh, this report, which is kind of extensive and talks to a lot of insiders, also talks about how Matt Reeves' um, solo Batman movie would go forward without uh, Ben Affleck, uh, most likely, because it focuses on a young... Batman, and uh, also talks about how The Flash under game night duo John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein uh, also will, will have more lighter sides. So uh, on the flip side, they're trying to essentially move all their darker tone stuff to this potential new label and um, lighten up their main DCEU saga. 
it's so weird because it, it almost seems like the executives at Warner Brothers have no sense of what people are saying about their movies. Like, out of all the things that you could call the DC standalone label, you call it, what, DC Black or DC Dark? Like, it, I mean... I feel like DC Dark is really on the nose, too. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It just seems like a weird way to go. Uh, did this new report say anything about that other mo- that other Joker movie with Jared Leto? It says that it's still in the works, but will be part of the main DCEU. But this new label is a way of essentially separating the origin movie with Joaquin Phoenix and Todd Phillips away from that Jared Leto movie. So everything is still in the works that we've been reporting on so far, but it just seems like they're trying to essentially organize things into uh, standalone anthology uh, movies that are outside of the DCEU and organize its own DCEU. I just don't understand how the Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie is going to be in DC Dark, but the Jared Leto Joker movie is going to be yeah. considered part of the light side of the DC universe. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. This is baffling to me. But uh, let's move on to our next story, and that is uh, the director of uh, This Is America and Atlanta, uh, Hiro Murray, I think is how you pronounce it? Murray? Murray, Murray? I think. Uh, I is... think it's Murray. Right, uh, is helming a new sci-fi thriller called Man Alive. Uh, Chris wrote this up for the site, but Ben, what do we know? Yeah, so Hiro Murai is the director of a bunch of episodes of X- FX's Atlanta. He also directed the This Is America video with Donald Glover slash Childish Gambino. He's directed uh, some episodes of Barry, uh, one of the really, I think, the best episodes of the first season of that show. He's also behind uh, some Legion and Snowfall episodes as well. So he, he's really like a rising star. But I think the one-two punch of Atlanta and This Is America earlier this year really got him noticed in a, in a huge way. And now he's basically just worked in television and music videos leading up to this point. But now it looks like he is going to be making the jump into feature films. Uh, Deadline reports that he is getting ready to jump into movies with a film called Man Alive, which is a sci-fi thriller with a spec script by Joe Greenberg. And it follows uh, director David Robert Mitchell just came on to do a rewrite of the, the story. And the, plot of the film covers the events following the invasion of Earth by an alien species when a man faced with isolation and loneliness in order to survive realizes he might not be alone after all. So that's a pretty vague uh, logline, I guess. But just the idea of this guy jumping into the feature world is really exciting. Anyone who's seen anything that he's directed knows that he's super talented and is probably going to be a major force, uh, at least creatively. I don't know about, you know, the success of, you know, box office and all that kind of stuff. But um, for anybody who cares about cinema, I think this is a good thing. Yeah, he's done a lot of work with Donald Glover, include, uh, including a lot of the best episodes of Atlanta. And he, he, he does things in such an interesting, thoughtful Away, I'm, I'm I'm so excited to see him get a chance at a big screen movie. I, I I was speculating if they if you know if Solo a Star Wars story was uh, a hit, which it was not. Um, that if they were going to do a Lando movie, it should should have been directed by Hero. But uh, that doesn't seem to be in the cards for now. Uh, but I am interested in seeing anything he does on the big or small screen. Uh, let's move on to another small screen thing, and that is Amazon has announced a new documentary series on the competitive world of stand-up comedy. Brad, you are our resident comedy guy. Uh, what do we know? Yeah, Amazon announced that they're working on a new documentary series today. Uh, it doesn't have a title yet, but it's going to be six episodes long. 
and it will follow uh, comedians as they embark on trying to land a spot in the showcase called New Faces at the Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal. Uh, the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival is one of the uh, biggest festivals um, in stand-up comedy that you can be a part of. A lot of big names come through there and do shows, and it's where a lot of uh, some of the most famous comedians today started off doing the New Faces Showcase, Amy Schumer, Kevin Hart, Kumail Nanjiani. And so it's there's a lot of competition to get into one of the slots that are, is on the New Faces Showcase. And this documentary series will uh, focus on some comedy clubs in New York and Los Angeles as comedians audition and try to get a spot in there. And so it'll talk to the comedians about their process of writing jokes and polishing them and how long they've been working at it and really show the, the trials and tribulations of stand-up comedy. And like... This is fascinating to me just because uh, a lot of people don't really get to see this side of stand-up comedy much. Mo most people's experience with stand-up comedy comes from seeing these polished one-hour specials that are on Netflix and Comedy Central and HBO. But the stand-up world uh, itself is there's there are so many stand-up comedians out there, and it's such uh, a hard like gamut to run when you're doing open mics, you know, every other night of the week, and you're performing at these small comedy clubs. You barely, you know, getting paid if you get paid at all, sometimes it's just about getting the stage time, getting the experience, getting seen in front of an audience or hopefully in front of, you know, some talent reps from agencies if you're performing in New York and LA. And so it's just this really big rat race. And so getting an inside look at up and coming comedians who are just trying to make it, who have, who have also already put in, you know, years of work into some of these, these sets, you know, I think it's going to be really cool to see that. See, I'm not a stand-up comedy nerd as much as you are, but um, I've always been fascinated by, you know, that kind of – that whole world. Uh, you know, there are a lot of TV shows that kind of uh, dip their toes into that. What, The Marvelous Miss Maisel uh, crashing on HBO? Um Probably the the best film I probably have seen about that world is uh, the Jerry Seinfeld documentary, Comedian, um, which – was kind of about Jerry Seinfeld, uh, you know, getting rid of his entire routine and starting from scratch. And it, it probably is very dated now because it's, you know, full screen and shot in mini DV and has a whole subplot involving uh, Seinfeld's idolization of Bill Cosby. So it probably doesn't <laughs> play as well these days. Uh, but uh, I've always liked that documentary. Uh, Brad, since you're such a stand-up comedy nerd, I, I wanted to ask you if you had any recommendations of, like, some kind of stand-up comedy docs or, or shows that aren't just, like, talking heads. Because, you know, I want to actually see the – and that's what excites me about this show is, you know, that it seems like we're going get, to get to see kind of the, the process and not just a, a bunch of interviews about a comedian. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to find documentaries that aren't mostly just talking heads because – the thing is, is a lot of these documentaries, you know, like you, you really do have to talk to the comedian to really gain insight into their joke writing process and like the thoughts that go into it and like how they deal with certain kinds of crowds and performing in front of those different crowds and things like that. And so a lot of the insight does come from talking to comedians. But I think one of my favorite documentaries that does a little bit more because it shows some of the mundane sides of. Uh, going out on tour as a stand-up comic is The Comedians of Comedy, which is uh, one of Netflix's earliest productions that it was uh, they made back when they were still um, only doing DVDs by mail. And it, it features Pat Oswalt, Brian Posehn, Maria Bamford, and Zach Galifianakis. Um, and this is Zach Galifianakis before all the fame from The Hangover. 
And you get to follow them as they go on tour uh, called the Comedians of Comedy Tour, uh, where they're stopping at all these different places and traveling across the country. And you see some of their sets, but you also get some like really interested and candid insight into their lives, both as comedians and just, you know, as, as regular people. It's, it's really funny and it's also really insightful. You know, I have not seen that, and I just, I just kind of wrote it off. Not that I, I wouldn't want to watch a stand-up comedy special, but I wrote it off as not, you know, in the depth that y- you seem to be painting it as. So I'm gonna have to check that out. Um, but uh, earlier we were talking about DC and uh, them shifting again. Um, DC has uh, Warner Brothers has released the first uh, details of Wonder Woman, including uh, some first photos and the title. HT, you wrote this up for the site. I know you're super excited about this one. I am really excited. And it's not just because they are currently filming in my backyard. Well, not my literal backyard, but in Washington, D.C. And I'm highly debating going over to to stock the set at some point. But I didn't say that on the podcast. Uh, So (laughs) the Wonder Woman sequel title has finally been revealed. And it is called Wonder Woman 1984 which, yes, is an allusion to the year in which it sets, 1984. And uh, the 80s fashion is in full swing in the first images that we have from Wonder Woman 1984, which includes uh, Diana staring at a screen or several screens uh, playing 80s TV and movies and an image of Steve Trevor returning, um, looking very confused and clad in a... Moss green or brown, I'm not sure the color, tracksuit uh, in the mall. With a fanny the 80s. pack. With a fanny, well, the other image has a fanny pack. Okay. So another image of them uh, walking around on set has shown him in a different tracksuit <laughs> wearing a fanny pack. So um, they definitely look like they just stepped out of the Americans, and it's great. Uh, so, yeah, this is um, it's very surprising that they the first image they reveal is of Steve Trevor returning. We had reports that Chris Pine was going to, come back to uh wonder woman 1984 but we weren't sure in what capacity a lot of us theorized that it would be as a vision or hallucination but it looks like he'll be here in the flesh and blood and uh, very much alive as opposed to what we saw at the end of the first wonder woman so theories start you can start theorizing now but for right as of right now i'm just very happy to see chris pine in the 80s attire and yes it is a little bit troubling that they just kind of did away with that really emotional um fitting ending for steve trevor but at the same time i just i'm very happy to see chris pine in a tracksuit when i saw wonder woman on the wonder brothers lot they had this like reception after and i got to talk to jeff johns at the time and i was like you know because during that whole sequence they kind of don't show steve die they cut away and then they showed the wide of it uh, mm-hmm. and I, I asked him, I was like, does that, does that give you a way to keep him alive? And you're like, no, he died. Um, so, uh, so I don't know. I'm, I'm really wondering how, how do you bring him back? Because he's obviously there. He's not like a vision. He's not a flashback. He's not, uh, H, do you have any, any theories? So before they announced the villain was Cheetah, um, played by Kristen Wiig, I was thinking that they would lean into Wonder Woman's Greek mythology, uh, maybe have Circe, maybe have Diana venture into the underworld and uh, face off against Hades and rescue Steve, perhaps, from the underworld. But I'm not sure if that'll be the case. 
I don't know. It, it just yeah. Well, well, we have to tr- put our trust in Patty Jenkins and uh, see what what comes of this. I'm sure they're gonna have to explain it at some point during the marketing uh, before this movie comes out. Uh, so we'll we'll keep an eye on things. Uh, but one thing I wanted to talk about in this news is a report that Jordan Peele wanted to direct or wants to direct a gargoyles movie for disney ben you you wrote this insanity up for us uh is this happening what is going on here so it's not happening right now but i guess theoretically it could if disney decides to so just for people who don't know gargoyles was an animated series that walt disney television produced in the mid 90s and it was sort of like in the vein of batman the animated series like a a darker show with like you know some serious topics and not necessarily just the standard kid stuff that that was on in that era um it had a pretty small but really loyal fan base and they've been clamoring for a movie version for years and years and a new report uh in the ankler which is an industry newsletter uh written by richard rushfield says that jordan peele who won an Oscar for writing Get Out last year and and directed that film as well. And, you know, Key and Peele, everybody knows who Jordan Peele is at this point. He pitched a new movie version of Gargoyles to Disney. So the quote is that he walked in and said he wanted to do a new version of Gargoyles. But instead of greenlighting the movie or just turning it down outright, Disney is apparently just sitting on its hands. So I'll, I'll read the quote from... Uh, the Ankler newsletter here. It says, how do you turn down Jordan Peele? Well, you can't. Who wants to be responsible for that decision? So in the absence of a good reason to say no, but prevented by their big IP box from saying yes, Disney is slow walking the project. It's hoping, it seems, that they'll run out the clock, he'll sign other deals elsewhere, and the project will just fade away. So it seems like Richard Rushfield is suggesting that because this Gargoyles movie doesn't necessarily fit very neatly within Disney's branded silos, which are like the live action fairy tale movies that they've been doing or Star Wars or Pixar or Marvel. The studio sees it, apparently sees it as too much of a risk right now. So instead of turning it down and theoretically making a bad decision, if maybe somebody else were to, I guess somebody else couldn't make this movie because it's a Disney property, but I guess they're just scared of is what that's the characterization anyway that disney is scared of this movie and it's they're just basically paralyzed with fear and not making a decision and just hoping that jordan peele moves on to something else so uh ht i know you're a fan of gargoyles you've written in the past about how it could be like the next big franchise um what do you think about this i am a big fan especially with jordan peele i think he could bring a really interesting genre spin to Gargoyles. And yeah, I used to watch it as a kid. It was the show that I took a while to come around to because I was very traumatized by Fantasia when I was young. And uh, there was a big scene with a gargoyle in one of the shorts that like really traumatized me for several years but then <laughs> the um the Gargoyle show was just so good and so enjoyable and very gothic and weird i think that it would be a very unusual feature film for disney but i think in jordan peele's hands it would be really interesting and very unique it's just it, it's kind of weird because this is the same company that had or has Guillermo del Toro developing a movie based in the Haunted Mansion ride. Is it, I can't get a sense of, is it Disney is afraid of Jordan Peele or they're afraid of making a Gargoyles live action movie? I would say probably Gargoyles because it is a little hard to translate, you know, anthropomorphic Gargoyles coming to life as your main protagonist. 
and you only have one human character, but she's really the supporting character. So I think that's probably where they are sort of balking. And it's also like an April O'Neil kind of relationship where there's yeah. like some sexual tension going on <laughs> between between her and, and Goliath, which is the main gargoyle. So that maybe is a little weird to consider in this environment, in this social climate right now. Maybe that's part of the reason that they're sort of hanging on to this and, and maybe not making a decision right away. But And also like the name recognition of the show might not be enough for them to give it the budget that, that Peel might want because... Again, the show was, you know, it was popular in its day to a degree, but it certainly does not have the same level of of uh, popularity and acclaim that something like Batman or, or, you know, one of the bigger cartoons of that era, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, something like that has. But I feel like, you know, there aren't many filmmakers today that have a brand name that would bring people to the theaters to see something. And I know Jordan Peele is uh, a newbie in, in the uh, the grand scheme of things, but I feel like he is really one of those people that could bring a lot of butts into seats to see anything. I, I think that's probably where the problem is coming, right? Because from what we've seen from Disney so far, they don't necessarily care as much about the filmmakers. They're more about the brands. Like that's the whole thing with Disney is brand management. So I don't know if that's the case because they've uh, worked with Ava DuVernay and Ryan Coogler for their some franchise projects so and for like their live action adaptations too they've gone for more uh prolific directors than just uh, someone who will be a journeyman yeah i, I guess it, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and with this fox acquisition coming up possibly it seems like they're gonna have to you know expand their wings into like what kind of properties and franchises they're gonna be tackling anyways so why not just get the ball going and, you know, develop this? Because as you as we all know, everybody on this podcast or listening to the podcast knows that when you're developing something, there's a chance of what, like one in a hundred that it'll actually get made. Uh, probably right. even less than that. So, like, you know, why not just entertain the idea? Let's put a couple, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, a couple, maybe a million dollars into the development and see if, you know, it sparks anything like I don't know. I just don't understand the fear, but, uh, you know, we're, we're getting this through third hand information from a newsletter. So, and not that I don't trust, uh, Richard Rushfeld. Uh, he has good Intel. It's just, uh, I don't know. It seems so weird to me, but, uh, let's move on to star Wars because it wouldn't be a podcast. Uh, it wouldn't be a slash film daily without star Wars. Um, and George Lucas, he has recently revealed, the direction of his abandoned Star Wars sequel trilogy. As you know, uh, when J.J. Abrams came on to direct Force Awakens, they they kind of got, went away from what George's plans were. And we've gotten little itsy-bitsy pieces of uh, peeks at those plans through the art of Star Wars books. But this is the first uh, we've heard from George himself. Brad, what do we know? Yes, George Lucas recently participated in AMC's documentary series, James Cameron's A Story of Science Fiction. And along with that series comes a companion book that has uh, the interviews that go along with it and provides some more insights into the creation of some of the most iconic sci-fi movies, TV shows, and whatnot. And in it, James Cameron is talking to George Lucas about uh, world building and sort of the idea of creating mythology and ecosystems and even religion to flesh out the cinematic worlds they've created. And that got George Lucas on the topic of uh, vaguely what he had intended to do 
with a, a new trilogy of films that would have followed Return of the Jedi. And what he told James Cameron was, uh, the next three Star Wars films, we're going to get into a microbiotic world. But there's this world of creatures that operate different than we do. I call them the wills. And the wills are the ones who actually control the universe. They feed off the force. And the, um, the idea of the wills is something that has actually been around since the inception of Star Wars. Before Star Wars was called Star Wars, George Lucas had envisioned this story to be called the Journal of the Wills. And Star Wars is essentially a story that is being told by these people known as the Wills, almost as if it's something that's part of their own mythology and history that they're now regaling us with these with these stories. And so uh, to George Lucas continued to explain. He said, back in the day, I used to say ultimately what this means is we were just cars or vehicles for the Wills to travel around in. We were vessels for them. And the conduit is the midichlorians. The midichlorians are the ones that communicate with the wills, and the wills, in a general sense, they are the force. So to me, what this sounds like is that George Lucas really wanted to dive into the creation myth behind the force and the, the, you know, the, this life force that is in all things, almost kind of taking an approach in the way that Ridley Scott has with Prometheus and Alien Covenant by explaining where the xenomorphs came from and exploring our own creation myth through that lens and honestly that just sounds like the absolute wrong way to go with star wars for me like if you hated the idea of midi chlorians being introduced in the prequels this seems like this turns that up to 11 and makes it thoroughly boring um i almost wonder if george lucas read any of the like fan backlash against his movies because it seems like he either has no sense or he just doesn't give any you know, fucks about. Oh, like no, if, he, he knows because he talks about how the fans probably would have hated it because they hated Phantom Menace uh, and that kind of thing. So he's aware of it, but for his part, he also really just seems like he doesn't care because he wants to tell what he wants to tell. And yeah, I don't know. For me, this this makes me happy that George Lucas didn't get a chance to do this new trilogy because I think it would have probably been fairly unsatisfying. And if anything, like it makes me want like wonder exactly what some of these people are like thinking when they're saying we want George Lucas to come back. And it's like, what do you mean you want George Lucas to come back? Like you saw what he did last time. (laughs) I mean, come on. It it also seems to be like in a totally different direction than what they're going in now, where it's kind of like, we're just the puppets that are being played by, you know, destiny and fate in these. Yeah, exactly. It it takes away like the, any significance of what's happening because if we're not really in, if those characters aren't in control of it, then, what does it matter? Like, what is driving these wills and what's their, their significance? You know, it, it kind of dives into this whole philosophical, re- religious area, which it sounds fascinating in itself if you were to think about it and apply it to humanity. But as far as being in the spirit of Star Wars and trying to fit that into, you know, the action-adventure sci-fi side of Star Wars, it doesn't feel like it, it quite fits in the way that George Lucas thought it would have. And plus, I think that we still get some remnants of this in the current Star Wars sequel trilogy, because the Force has become something that isn't just tied to microbiology or anything like that, but it is it is has become like this actual life force that exists in everything and isn't just something like Luke tells Rey isn't something that Jedi can tap into and use to control things. Yeah, it's, it's and I do want to say that like you know I don't like the Metaclorians. I don't know many people that do. I, I do know a couple uh, prequel defenders that do, but. Um, I think the the reason why Metaclorians went wrong is because they made it a closed system. They made it that 
to harness the force, you needed more metachlorians than other people, which thus means that you were either born into it or, you know, like, I feel like it wasn't the fact that they tried to explain the force. It was how they explained the force uh, that, that made it so bad. Anybody yeah, disagree? that's a good point. Yeah. No, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought about that before, but I think you're right. I think that's, I mean, that's the big thing that the big conversation that we've been having about Ray ever since she's been introduced, right? Is like the whole idea of her being destined for the the journey that she's gone on. And a lot of people in those conversations have tied it back to the midichlorian. So I think that's the, that's, it's a good line to draw between those two. I just wonder if uh, if any of the future Star Wars films are actually ever going to like kind of acknowledge Metaclorians or explain them further, because I feel like now that we have like Brumboy on, you know, um, uh, what, what is that? Uh, Kinto Bite? I almost forgot the name of the planet. That's how yes. <laughs> memorable it is. Uh, you know, I feel like there needs like it needs to be somewhere, maybe even in a book or comic book, some explanation of of because it seems to be going against what George outlined in the prequels, but maybe there's a way to explain it. Oh no. Maybe, maybe there is a way throughout your, out, uh, your life to change your Metaclorian clown as like, as you know, it changes with your body. Oh no. You mean like you can change, <laughs> like you can change your stars in a knight's tale, Peter. I don't remember that. <laughs> That's too obscure a reference, Brad. What a reference! <laughs> I, I don't too think I've deep. ever seen a Knight's Tale, to be honest what? with you. Yeah. Oh man. oh man, a Knight's Tale is so fun. It is fun. It's fun, but I don't remember any of like the the lore from it. Just that the I mean, that's not really, punk rock music. It's not really lore. It's just it, that's just like like him talking about how like his kid can just like do anything he wants to. Like he doesn't he doesn't have to like you know just because he's not of noble bloodline doesn't mean he can't do great things. Yeah. It sounds like a question for the Lucasfilm story group, Peter. And uh, we will never get the chance to interview them, so we will never get to ask that question. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but that brings us to the end of uh, this edition of Slash Film Daily. Brad, where can people find more of your work online? You can always find me on SlashFilm.com. I'm also on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton, and I also have a podcast called Go Flix Yourself on iTunes and other areas. Ben, where can we find you? You can find me writing at SlashFilm.com. I'm on Twitter at Ben Pears. And you can listen to my other podcast, the Not Just New Movies podcast, at NotJustNewMovies.com. HT, where can we find you? You can also find me every day at SlashFilm.com. And I'm on Twitter at HTranBooey. And you can find me at SlashFilm on all social media. You can find all the stories we talked about today linked in the show notes and on SlashFilm.com. This podcast is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to peter at slashfilm.com. And as always, please, please, please go rate and review, review this podcast on iTunes. Spread the word. Tell your friends. We'll see you tomorrow.